Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing them in the patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that they will go out into the American culture and leaven it with the good news. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture UST. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Great to hear your voice. How are you doing, Zach? I'm good. It's insane to believe that uh, we've sort of made it through an entire season of Jesuitical again. Uh, I know. What yeah, Are so we at 150? I think we're getting close. Yeah, it just seems wild that we launched this, you know, more than three years ago and that we've got another season under our belts. I know. Yeah. How, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm back in Virginia or no. Well, by the time you hear this, dear listener, I'll be on vacation, which I'm very much looking forward to. I haven't. It's like weird to take a vacation during a pandemic. And it's really just going to be me not working, not really going anywhere exciting. But I'm ready I, for it. <laughs> I think that's important. And it is certainly well deserved. Yeah. But before I get to take off, who are we talking to this week, Zach? We have a great show this week with Bishop Robert Barron, who is the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries and Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Yes, our second bishop on the show. It's very exciting. Yeah, we're on a roll right now. But this is, uh, you probably know who Bishop Barron is. If you don't, um, he's a best-selling author, um, as we said, founder of Word on Fire. He's the host of Catholicism, um, a documentary series about the Catholic faith on PBS. Um, and he's got a huge presence. On- yeah, you got to be living under a rock. He's <laughs> He's been, his YouTube videos have been viewed over 50 million times over 2.3 million followers on Facebook. So we're catching up, but we still got a little way to go, little way to go before we're yeah. going to be on Bishop Barron's level. <laughs> we have a great conversation with Bishop Barron about the internet and some of the opportunities and pitfalls that go along with being in a space like that. Um, we also get into some current event stuff. So we're talking about um, the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, in addition to his thoughts about you know what effective evangelization looks like in uh, our current day. Yeah. And some sad news. This is our last weekly episode before the summer. Uh, so we, we talked to him for a while. We're not going to have a uh, send to the times or consolations and desolations this week. Um, cause we really did want to give this conversation the space it deserved. Um, so we will miss you over the summer, but we're not disappearing. No. And in fact, you know, Ashley and I, we, we will still be working after Ashley gets back from her vacation. We've got day jobs at America still. So you can definitely keep up with the work that we're doing as a Jesuitical team at americamagazine.org. You could sign up for uh, one of our newsletters there. Um, but this ministry is also going to continue in our Facebook group and our Twitter feed. So uh, check those out. They're in our show notes. Um, but we do have one thing that we want to ask you to do before we go away from your podcast feeds. Yes. So in order for this show to be even better when we're back in the fall, we need some feedback from you, dear listeners. So we have crafted a survey. Yeah, so we've got a listener survey. We need your feedback on 
uh, what parts of the show you like, which parts you think could be a little bit better. Are we too long? Are my jokes not funny enough? We need all of that types of information. And also it helps, uh, we need to learn a little bit about you. And so our sponsors know who you are. It helps us out as a show as well. Um, so we're going to be putting that everywhere. So it'll be in our Facebook group, our Twitter feed. It'll be in the show notes here. Um, it'll be on America's website. So if you can't find it, let me know personally and I will send it to you. Um, but it should be everywhere. So please fill out the listener survey. Um, we really need it to make the show better. And now enjoy our conversation with Bishop Bob Barron. Joining us from Santa Barbara is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron is an auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and the founder of the global media ministry Word on Fire. Welcome to Jesuitical, Bishop Barron. Thank you. Great to be on with you guys. Great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Really looking forward to this. Um, we'll just start with the question we ask every bishop who comes on the show, and it's it's an easy one um, normally, but I guess coronavirus has changed things a bit. But uh, what does a typical day look like for you? Oh, you know, they are different. You're right. And this period has been very strange. Typical day, I begin with uh, holy hour. I wake up pretty early and I'm in my chapel about, I don't know, 5.30 or so, do a holy hour, have a little breakfast. Um, again, depending on the day, I might be going out to a parish for a, a liturgy or an event. Uh, I meet often with the deans of my region. So I'm auxiliary of one of the five regions of LA. So we meet a lot. And I, you know, there's almost always some event or liturgy or something in the afternoon or the evening. Um, so that's usually what my day looks like. Now, I also have a little time for um, my word on fire at work. So I will do homily prep or I'll write an article or I'll, I'll go to our studio here and record homilies or videos. So that is sort of woven into my schedule, too. So, you know, it keeps me busy. Yeah, I'm not. You say you have a little time to do all the work you do for Word on Fire. <laughs> Seems like you would need uh, uh, 48 hours in every day to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank God for the team I've got. You know, we have 30 people now full time at Word on Fire. Oh, wow. So you've been doing these online homilies for a very long time. And in the last three months, that has become a more crowded space um, thanks yeah. to the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. So you were kind of, you were ready for, for this in many ways that other people weren't. So I'm yeah. wondering if you can explain, you know, you were an early adopter of social media and YouTube and all of that as a yeah. tool for evangelization. How, how did you know that that was where the church needed to be then and even more so needs to be now? I guess it's like late nineties, maybe I was a professor at Mundelein. So I was teaching, I was writing, I was giving talks, doing a lot of those sort of, you know, classic things, but it just grew on me as a conviction that, that we can and should do so much more as a Catholic church and using at the time, I'm just the emerging new media to do it. So I started, I, I went down to um, WGN, which is the largest radio station in Chicago. And I, you know, they didn't know me from Adam, and I, I knew nobody there. I just went down and said, what would it cost for me to get a little sermon show on, on the radio? And they said, well, we have a time slot at 5.15 on Sunday morning. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and they said, uh, for $50,000, we can get you on for the year. So with that information, I went to the people at the parish I was helping out at at the time, and I, I told them exactly that story. And they raised the $50,000. So that's how I started with, mm. it was a sermon show. 
And then it was picked up by um, other radio stations. And then it kind of morphed into, once the internet really kicked in, it morphed into more of an online thing. But I started with the, you know, standard kind of Fulton Sheen approach of getting on radio. Um, but I, I just I sort of felt it in my bones. And I, I recognize it now, I think, as something of an inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, you know, the church should be doing this. So we just uh, started. I, I imagine that some people would have been a little skeptical in the beginning, at least in terms of especially YouTube and Facebook and other social media. Yeah. Forms. Those are sort of viewed as they can be viewed as somewhat toxic places within the church. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I started YouTube in 2007. I think YouTube was invented in 2006. So at the mm -hmm. time, it was brand new. And I agree with you about the toxicity. And, and we didn't, I don't think, we didn't fully grasp it at that point. YouTube was kind of just something silly, I remember, when we first started. It was like people put these sort of silly videos about their cats and dogs and that sort of thing. And, and we thought, well, let's, you know, let's try something here. But, you know, I, I discovered over time that it was a marvelous tool for reaching out to people the church would otherwise never reach. You know, I, I came to love that. And even, even the negative comments, because I realized, okay, these are people that the church, I mean, they'd never come to one of our events or, or you know, for a talk or a mass. Mm -hmm. But oddly, at least I'm able to reach them somehow with this. So I, I learned to kind of savor that. It's a hard thing to savor when people, when trolls are attacking you yeah. uh, in the comments section. So how, how did you approach it? Did you, did you see even that as a way to evangelize? It's true in the beginning. I was so shocked by it because I didn't realize at first you could even comment on YouTube videos. I, I didn't realize that. And suddenly I'd go and check like how many views did we get? And in those days I was thrilled if we got, you know, 300 views. Hey, uh, <laughs> then I began looking at the comments. And yes, at first I was kind of like, oh my gosh. But what I discovered was, you know, you eliminate ones that were just obscene or they were just, you know, thoroughly obnoxious. But but sometimes you discern in there, okay, there's an honest question or that's an honest observation, you know? And you could build on that. So I would I'd respond and say something like, yeah, I get what you're saying. And, you know, a lot of smart people have held what, this point of view, but might I suggest, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So it was just kind of a, throwing out a little a little uh, lifeline to somebody. Uh, and sometimes wonderful conversations ensued. The other thing I discovered was there's the person you're talking to, but then there's tons of people that you're not talking to directly, but they're paying very close attention to the conversation, you know? So many times over the years, people have said, I, I never actually wrote a comment, but I, I loved that long conversation you had, you know, with the atheist about whatever. So I, I learned that it was a fertile ground, you know, for evangelization. We, uh, speaking of comments, we we had posted our podcast as a Facebook group and um, that we were yeah. going to be chatting with you. And uh, there were a few listeners that sort of like raised, speaking of comments and how to be constructive about them. Um, who were frustrated by some of the people that you've talked to. And you obviously are someone that talks to all kinds of and sorts of people, but do you ever, do you he hear the criticism often? Like when you go to talk to someone like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro, how do you sort of like take that in and try and respond in a constructive way? Well, I think we, I've always been interested in reaching out to people that have an impact on the, on the culture. And if there are people who are, are smart and they're engaged and they're having an impact, I mean, why wouldn't I talk to them? Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean I'm 
hereby endorsing everything they've ever said. I mean, I think that's silly. I think you you dialogue, you converse. I mean, Jesus clearly didn't agree with everyone that he talked to. So I think the church should be in that stance. Uh, you know, if someone reaches out to me, I think, in fact, Peterson, I think it was his camp, you know, reached out to us like, okay, yeah, this guy is a you know huge cultural influencer. And um, sure, I'll talk to him. Uh, so I, I I don't think we can afford to be too, you know, kind of fussy or squeamish about that. I think the church should be willing to to listen and to talk and to, to dialogue. Do you think yeah. there was something that, like, why do you think people were upset? I mean, there's obviously one reading is that, you know, you shouldn't dialogue with these people and you shouldn't dialogue with people you disagree with. But is there something else? Is there something to that criticism or critique that, like, you took in? I know last, like, Jordan Peterson, that kind of blew up way more than things normally do. Well, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. You know, I mean, some of the people that criticized me for that, it was, I thought was sort of silly. I I mean, what I said to the bishops was, here's someone who's smart and articulate and talking about the Bible and getting a massive response from young people, especially young men. I said, I think that's worth looking at, or that's worth paying attention to. I explicitly said, I'm not hereby endorsing mm-hmm. everything he says. In fact, I said, I don't think Peterson really believes in God, in in a you know, certainly in our sense of the term. So that I was, you know, thereby endorsing Jordan Peterson. No, I think he's someone we should pay attention to. And if we can, yeah, talk to him. You know, heck, as you I'm sure well know, I get conservatives mad at me all the time. You know, for t- how could you possibly appear at Google headquarters? Don't you know what these people stand for? And so, I mean, sure, I get that from both sides. But yeah, I was uh, gonna, I was gonna say, I, it's, I know that some people have criticized like Pope Francis for calling for dialogue. They they see even the word as like a way to put forward like a, a squishy version of Catholicism. You can only you can only dialogue if you're gonna, you know, maybe dumb down. Catholicism or leave out parts of it that will that'll lead to conflict. Um, so I'm wondering how you how you define dialogue. Like what 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 does it mean to be in dialogue while still holding on to the entire Catholic tradition? Yeah, I don't see any contradiction there at all. I don't think it's a matter ever of compromising what you what you hold. I think it's a reaching out in good faith and with intelligence and answering questions, responding to questions. Um, I, I like that terminology of steel manning someone's argument. You know, so we straw man when we make a you know a caricature of it and we knock it down. No, when you enter a dialogue with someone, you know, present their point of view as strongly as you can, and say, "Here's what I, I hear you saying. Is that right? And here's here's I think the rather persuasive case you're making. Am I right about that? And then take it from there. But I I don't see any contradiction there that you're somehow compromising your own. Viewpoint. I mean, I'm with Newman. You, the church moves out confidently to a culture, assimilating what it can, resisting what it must. I'm curious if there's a, a time when you were sort of taken by an encounter or a dialogue that sort of, if not like changed a position or somehow like deepened an understanding in a way that you were totally surprised by that sticks out in your mind. Um, I have to think about that a little bit. Uh, I've always enjoyed those conversations. I, I talk in the early days. See, we're talking now kind of left, right within the Catholic space. But I, I like talking to atheists. Uh, so early on, when I was first on YouTube, a lot of my dialogue partners were atheists. And, um, you know, I and would this was talk- sort of in like the new the, the height of the new atheist movement. Yeah, right. That's right. So a lot of the Hitchens, Dawkins, you know, Sam Harris uh, 
disciples. And I, I would say, sure, humbly, that in those conversations, you know, my own approach probably got honed a bit or, or you know, so, oh, yeah, maybe if I put it that way, it's not as effective or, you know, that's a valid perspective. Uh, I, I get what they're driving at there. So, yeah, those things certainly happen. And I, I try, I'm not always successful at it, but I try to acknowledge that in the course of a conversation. You know, to say to someone, yeah, thanks, that last point you made, I think is really valid. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way before. Uh, that's usually better than, may I say once again, why you're wrong about this. Right. So, yeah, I, I think I, I can't come up with like a one dramatic example of that. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's certainly happened. I'm curious, you know, something I've been challenged by um, is Pope Francis is like, he, he's had a couple uh, statements and his homilies and audiences where he's talked about uh, the difference between evangelization and proselytizing. Yeah. Um, and I always feel a little bit like indicted by that, especially different things I've tried in my life. How do you understand it in a digital context, maybe? what the difference or the line is between proselytization and authentic evangelization? You know, first I can tell you uh, that question came up at the Ad Limita visit when we were in the presence of Pope Francis. It, it wasn't me that raised it. One of the other bishops raised it. And and the Pope gave the answer that that I would basically give, uh, that, that what he means by proselytizing is bad evangelization. <laughs> That's to say, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a corruption of evangelization. It's a you know, browbeating, I got all the answers, you shut up and listen to me. It's it's more of a stylistic thing, it seems to me. What, what I'm very resistant to, and I think it's behind your question there, is driving such a wedge between those things that, that anything like intellectual engagement is seen as proselytizing, you know? And I say, not at all. I, I, I would define, in fact, apologetics, if you want, as giving... Uh, good answers to honest questions. And and I've said many times, if you don't think young people have a lot of questions about religion, you have not accompanied a lot of young people. I've been been accompanying Mm -hmm. young people digitally for a long time. And trust me, they got tons of questions about the faith and that the church should be on for giving good, honest answers to those questions. Yeah, of course. I think that's key to evangelization, not the whole of it, but it's it's a key part of it. But proselytizing, I'd say, is bad evangelization. It's it's browbeating, it's arrogant, it's hyper-rationalistic, all those things. But I, I don't I don't overdraw the distinction so that something like authentic apologetics is uh, is precluded. Yeah, you, I'm glad you used that word authentic because you know young adults young people in general are, you know, allergic to anything they see as inauthentic. Um, and so when you talk about apologetics, for some people, it, what they typically hear from the church can sound kind of like prepackaged answers instead of genuine accompaniment with their questions. So I'm wondering how, how do you try to meet them where they are um, when you're engaging in apologetics? Yeah, by listening carefully. So listen to the questions. You know, example I gave, I think I said this at the Bishop's Conference. I was on that Reddit AMA. I've been on it twice. Mm-hmm. You know, the Ask Me Anything. And mm-hmm. uh, I say it not to to uh, brag about myself, because I'm quite sure none of them knew who I was. I simply <laughs> came on as, I'm a Catholic bishop that loves talking to atheists and non-believers, something like that, you know. 
And the two times I've done it, it was the first time I was the third most popular of the year after I think um, uh, Bernie Sanders and Jordan Peterson. The second time I was the second most popular. And again, not because of me, they don't know who I am, but that I was a Catholic bishop coming on. Now, you have to wade through a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, of crap, you know, when you do the Reddit AMA. But you also, in those tens of thousands of questions, there's a very clear pattern that emerges of the kind of questions that especially young men on that forum have. And I'll tell you what they are. They are God. Does God exist? How do you know? Second, the problem of evil. If there's a God, why is there suffering? Third, how do you know your religion is the right religion? Fourth, homosexuality. Those are by far the biggest four questions. So I think to answer your question, what you do is you listen. So that was a great uh, uh, boon for me to be on those things and say, okay, I've been able to hear from like tens of thousands of people what's on their minds when it comes to religion. And those were the big four. Uh, many others besides too, but I think you you listen. Yeah, and so like prepackaged answers. Well, of course, you never want to give a prepackaged answer. You want to give an answer that that responds to the question that's in front of you, and, and better to the person in front of you. I, I when I was in college, I, I think I was a little bit overzealous in some of the stuff, and I know I would I would listen for like a buzzword, and then I would just yeah. you know go to that part of my brain that's like, oh, this is the this is the answer that I was told would be effective. And then right. walk away feeling really good about myself that I had, I had said the right thing, right? Without yeah. having any idea of how the other person heard it. And, and you know what's really hard to that point? What's really hard when you're doing this internet kind of ministry is that you don't see the person. You know what I'm saying? If you're, you're at a university campus, let's say, and you're dealing one-on-one with a human being and you can see him or you can, you know, you dialogue, you have conversation. The trouble is you're on Reddit AMA or YouTube or Facebook and up come these words, you know, and they're often obscene or obnoxious or hypercritical. And it's hard to discern the person behind those words. I think a very important technique, as I said, you find what's really good and beautiful and right in what they're saying. And you you bring that forward and then say, well, and here's where I, I hear your question. Am I right about that? You know, I think all of those moves are very important so that you don't just say, well, well, you're wrong, I'm right, here's the answer, you know. See, the trouble there is it's we're taking the corruption of apologetics as apologetics. So, I mean, everyone agrees that's bad. And, and mm-hmm. I call it proselytizing, fine. Just find an ugly word for it and we'll call it that. That's proselytizing. But that's not the same as as apologetics or evangelization. Yeah. How do you... So you're often dealing with people who are very critical of the church and maybe not always charitable toward you uh, or other Catholics. How do you maintain your own spiritual hope and balance through all that? Holy hour. That's why I do it every day. And uh, I believe that. I think when you're in this sort of work and you're out there, you know, you're really out there in the culture, it is a spiritually dangerous place to be. And you you are under a kind of uh, spiritual assault a lot. Uh, read the Psalms. Pick up the Psalms at any point. <laughs> You'll see a lot of language of, you know, Lord protect me and Lord I'm, you know, and, and the voices after me and those who are hemming me in and so on. Well, I mean, I I get that when when you come out into the public space speaking about, especially the Catholic Church today, uh, it puts you in that 
in that dangerous position. I've also got lots and lots of religious uh, praying for me. So, you know, people say to you all the time, uh, hey, you know, Bishop, God, pray for you. And I, I always say, okay, so please, could you pray for the following things? And I always say, part is, is my spiritual protection as I do this work. Um, but the holy hour that I do every morning, I think, is key to whatever, you know, spiritual balance I find. Do you ever get burnt out from trying to do all of this sort of intellectual engagement and do you ever wish you could, like you sort of staked out a lane pretty clearly? Um, I'm wondering if you ever get tired of that and sort of wish you could, you know, just take a step back and not feel like you have to try and like engage in an intellectual sense some of these things. Well, I may I make a distinction. I mean, I've always loved the intellectual life, and a lot of my priesthood has been in that dimension because they sent me off for doctoral studies, and I taught theology for many years. Uh, I've been a book writer and a teacher and all that. So that doesn't wear me out. I, mean, I love the intellectual life. In fact, when I want to take a little break from this kind of, you know, really in the trenches kind of engagement, what I love to do is work on a, a more serious intellectual project. So I've got a couple going right now. That to me is kind of relaxing, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, my life here, I mean, heck, it's an auxiliary bishop. It's mostly pastoral life. Everything we've been talking about now is like a pretty small percentage of my time would be doing this kind of stuff. Most of my life now is I'm a pastor of this region. And that's mostly what I do. What was that, what was that like for you to sort of transition into that? Or how did you see your, your when you became ordained a bishop, what, how did you see your own ministry change? Yeah, it did change a lot, you know, because I was professor and then I was rector of, the, of Mundelein, the largest Catholic seminary in the country. And I, I love that job, I must say. I love being rector of Mundelein because I, I knew it really well. I knew all the people there. I knew that life. And I, I loved it, uh, you know, shaping these, these young guys, moving toward the priesthood and all that. Coming out here as a bishop was like the last thing on my mind. So it was um, it was a difficult transition, I would say, just because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I, I'm suddenly in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. I didn't even know where Santa Barbara was, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I knew it was out there somewhere in Southern California. but So that was a hard part of the transition. In terms of the work, though, no, I love that. I mean, from the I love going out to a parish, uh, talking to the kids, uh, doing the liturgy. Uh, I, I love speaking to groups. And, and one thing, as a bishop, you know, you are a teacher because almost any time you appear anywhere, you speak to people. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you're always speaking the faith and speaking about prayer and speaking about the Lord. And so. The teacher side never really went away. It just kind of got a different, a different uh, expression. But no, I, I like I love doing the pastoral work. That doesn't bother me. I can take or leave some of the meetings. <laughs> there are more meetings. Couldn't now. we all? <laughs> <laughs> so I get that. Um, but you know, you do what you have to do. Yeah, I I think I don't think a lot of Catholics um, think about bishops as teachers. I think, you know, for most of us, our interaction with our bishop is, you know, getting co confirmed and then like maybe a statement every couple of years is issued yeah. by bishops. So how do you think about the teaching office of bishops and how, how, what is a good way for Catholics to, to think about that? Like, should they be, I don't know, looking to the bishop in their diocese as like their sure. Catholic professor? <laughs> Well, no, I make a couple of distinctions there. Not so much professor, but 
I'd use priest, prophet, and king. I, I love those Vatican II categories. That's my life. So as a priest, and bishop is kind of, if you want, he's sort of the high priest of a, of a diocese. As a priest, liturgy, prayer. Uh, whenever I go out to do a confirmation or, or do one of the sacraments or I celebrate mass or I'm leading people in prayer, I mean, that's the priestly side of my life. Um, the kingly side, like this morning, for example, we had a Zoom meeting with all the bishops of California. We have that during the crisis every Thursday at nine. So we talked about legal issues. We talked about dealing with the governor. We talked about opening the churches. We talked about money issues. Okay. And then I go to a deanery meeting. I go to, that's the, the kingly side. You know, that's the kind of governance side. But then the prophetic side is what you're driving at there. So don't think so much professor in the classroom, but you're you're a teacher. And as I say, anytime practically that I would show up, was a confirmation is a good example. I mean, yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm expressing the sacrament of the church, but I also get up for, you know, 12 minutes or so. And, and I hope teach something important to these young people about God and the Holy Spirit and their lives. And um, so I, you're, you're always in that kind of teacher mode too. You're, you're a speaker of the word, which, you know, Vatican II says is the primum officium. That's the first office of the, of the priest. And I take that very seriously. So I'd say priest, prophet, king is a good way to understand what the priest or bishop is about. Yeah. I love your use of the word prophet there. Um, and it kind of brings to mind this current moment um, in this country uh, where, you know, first we were hit by the coronavirus pandemic and now there are these um, yeah. protests across the country against police brutality. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of Catholics are are looking to their priests and bishops for some sort of prophetic witness in this moment. Um, and some are frustrated by not feeling like they're, they're getting that from the church. Um, so I'm curious how, how you're approaching this moment um, in your role as a, as prophet. Well, there's a lot of different ways. So today we talked about that as, as California bishops, we've organized a, a video um, uh, stations of the cross all across California, precisely around this issue. We have an ecumenical prayer service. I think it's been a couple of days in LA drawing together, uh, you know, people from the different Christian denominations to pray precisely about this issue. Pentecost Sunday, I did a homily on the Holy Spirit in relation to what's happening in the streets of America. God knows the USCCB has certainly made its, you know, fair share of statements, et cetera. But you know what I would do though, Ashley, is I Go back to Vatican II, you know, yeah, the bishops, of course, have a, a role to play there in articulating the church's point of view and to, you know, make statements and, and to prayer services. But it's the lady. I mean, I think have have the lion's share. It's the lady who transforms society. Uh, that's the Vatican II vision. Let's have great Catholic politicians, great Catholic lawyers, great Catholic police officers, great Catholic writers, great Catholic teachers, you know. So I, 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 we're in this together. You know, I think it's it's the priests, the bishops, and the laity together, acting as a leaven for our society. You know, so I, I would never want the laity to be waiting around for the bishops to make a statement. I mean, statements are fine, but I would encourage the laity, you know, by voting and by social action and all that, bringing the liturgy out into the streets, as uh, Reynold Hillenbrand, one of my heroes, said back in the 1940s. Uh, that's what this time is calling for, I think. You know, all of us are engaged in this. A lot of Americans are sort of reevaluating, especially white Americans, 
are reevaluating their own relationship to racism uh, in this country. Have have you been doing some of that, and has your perspective changed in recent months? Oh yeah, I think it'd be hard in this time not to be more deeply aware of all these ways, kind of consciously and unconsciously, that we're affected by. You know, I've, I've called it in print many times the original sin of America. That is clearly deep in the cultural DNA. It's deep in the, if you want to use Jungian terminology, a kind of collective unconscious and all of that. So, yeah, I think it's hard not to be affected. Uh, when I watched the, the George Floyd video, I think probably like everyone else in the country, it was beyond appalling. It, I, I mean, we just, it was almost incredible to me. Like, I, I don't understand how he could possibly be doing that to this man, you know? And so to follow that instinct and say, okay, well, what, what does make that possible? You know? So sure. I think all of us are, are involved in a kind of reevaluation, you know, examination of conscience, both personal and, and societal. This is going to, I think, come across as a, is a leading question. I don't mean it to, um, but I, I have always been very attracted to your, your emphasis on leading with beauty and evangelizing with beauty. Yeah. Um, and something that I've been thinking about recently is that too often the church has sort of looked, has sort of equated beautiful with, um, with whiteness in a lot of ways, right? Like I think a lot of the art that we hold up is very Eurocentric and white centric. And I'm wondering, as you've thought about that as sort of a fundamental part of your own ministry, are, are there other places we can, that we need to be looking and we can look? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, not that I would claim any great expertise, you know, I mean, I, I was trained in a certain area in a certain way. And that's, that's why I would know the best. But yeah, to your point, certainly, I mean, I look anywhere, there is something beautiful and good and true. Let's, let's celebrate it, use it. Absolutely. You know, you, you talked about how you um, kind of really enjoy engaging with, um, you know, atheists or, or people who um, do not agree with the Catholic Church. And I think uh, one thing Catholics have uh, struggled with maybe in this moment um, is seeing um, the Black Lives Matter movement as um, maybe like hyper-secular. Uh, you know, they look back to the civil rights movement and say, oh, you know, well, with that movement, there were, it was led by a, a reverend. So we could we could hop on with that, but we can't support Black Lives Matter because that means also accepting X, Y and Z. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, um, yeah, how do you, do you have you thought about trying to engage in the kind of dialogue that that you love to do um, with members of this movement? Sure, I'd be happy to if they're open to conversing with me uh, to your first point, you know, I, I think that's important. I, King is one of my great heroes. And, uh, I think that did make a difference. I think it made a huge difference that the leader of the civil rights movement in our country was a, a minister of the Christian gospel and was shaped by a deeply biblical imagination and led through nonviolence. I and mean, I think that was hugely important and impactful. And, uh, you know, so sure, in the measure that um, that a, a deeply biblical view of life was brought to bear, I think, yeah, that makes a very positive difference. Now, having said that, I, I'm more than happy to talk to anybody. And the I, Black Lives Matter, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. So I, with the central claim, you know, I, I'm in radical agreement. Um, so sure, on that basis, I'll talk to anyone that wants to. And, you know, it's behind it, too. It, it's justice. It's it's. 
this great virtue, one of the, the cardinal virtues, in fact, I'd say the central of the cardinal virtues, justice. What led the country now at its, at its best, there were certainly bad expressions of it in these you know, riots and so on, but uh, at its best, it was, a, it was a response of the heart to injustice. <laughs> people, people were just were just righteously indignant about that. And I say, you know, hooray, that's the right response. Um, you know, and, and that's what King certainly was able to channel was a biblical, prophetic, righteous indignation. So I'm I'm all in favor of that. Um, you know, Aquinas described or defined anger as an irrational desire for vengeance. That's the deadly sin of anger. And I think you did see some of that in the in the extreme reactions. Um, but righteous indignation? All right. I'm behind it 100 percent. Something, you know, eminently clear to people in on the West Coast and, and even in Chicago is that the American church is certainly not majority white anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is there something that you've learned from the Latino communities out West uh, well, that yeah. maybe listeners who are in all white parishes may not consider or think about. Oh gosh. I, I, well, I mean, I, I did know a lot of Latinos in Chicago because we have a large Latino population there, but I was, you know, my work in the seminary, I was probably a little bit more uh, detached here though, in my region, I mean, LA as a whole, the archdiocese is 70% Hispanic. So um, in my region, at least half the masses that I celebrate would be Spanish. Um, one thing is my Spanish has gotten a lot better since I've been out here, but I, I love that. I love it. And, uh, I, you know, I go up the Northern part of my region, which is near San Luis Obispo, that area, if you know it in California. And it's a lot of people that have, have come very recently from Mexico that have very little uh, sense of this country. It's like you're in central Mexico when you're up there. And I, I love the liturgies are the best. They're the best that I experience. Why is that? It's the joy and the and the sense of the Holy Spirit, the presence of everyone from the the littlest kids all the way to abuelo and abuela. I, I love the the richness of the family life being expressed, the exuberance uh, in prayer, the the even like call and response that you'll get when you're preaching. And and I have to preach in Spanish with with some kind of notes or something, so I'm not as spontaneous as I like to be. But the people more than make up for that. We, uh, Zach mentioned before that we had uh, told our Facebook group, Jesuitical's Facebook group, that we were going to be talking to you. And we, we asked them to give us some questions that they, they wanted you to yeah, answer. Sure. Uh, so we're hoping at the end here we can just kind of move through yeah. a few of these quickly. Um, so one asked uh, uh, to discuss the role young Catholics in their 20s and 30s can play in the new evangelization when so many of our peers have fallen away from the faith. Good. Yeah, You're in the front lines. You're the best evangelists there are. Not people like me. Maybe you can use <laughs> some materials and all that. But you're, as I say, you are in the front lines of evangelization. You, these are your friends. You know them. You know what their concerns are. You know the culture that shaped them. You get in the front lines with them and just, I mean, witness, witness to your faith. Let them know you're a Catholic. Uh, give a reason for the hope that's in you, as St. As Peter said. But I would say to young Catholics in their 20s, you're, you're it. You're it. You're the church. Go. Hey, End of rant. Sorry. I, we love a good rant on the podcast. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, question from Matthew. Uh, he wants to know how we get better at preaching in Catholic churches. Um, he's His wife is a convert from the evangelical tradition, and she finds that most, Catholic, most Catholic homilies are pretty boring. 
Um, yeah. And so she really loves your homilies, but is wondering how we get better preaching. In our they should be more biblical. Uh, this is a big topic. I'll come back another time to talk about it in detail. <laughs> but uh, my generation was trained very much in the kind of experiential expressivist model, right? Which is begin with your own experience and then speak about that. Now, there's something to be said for that, but it often devolved into homilies that became very self-referential, subjectivistic. Let me tell you about my vacation. You know, when I'm with Fulton Sheen, he has a famous talk years ago where he said, number one thing for preaching, it's got to be biblical because the Bible is always more interesting than my stupid life. It just is. And draw people into the dynamism of the Bible. Now, you don't do that by, you know, giving them a historical critical analysis of the Bible. I mean, open up the world of the Bible to people, uh, help them know it, help them live in it. And then to see the correlation between the biblical world and their world. That's the homily, it seems to me. It's what is the world of the Bible that's opened up? And then how does it correspond to or shed light on your world? So I would say make the sermons more biblical. Actually, that's a good pivot to... Um maybe Word on Fire's latest uh, project is the oh, yeah. the Word on Fire Bible. Um, could you just yeah. briefly give the elevator pitch on what that is and why you guys wanted to put out a, a, another Bible? Yeah, it's um, a multi-volume uh, effort. It's going to happen over many years. The first volume is the Gospels, the four Gospels, but they're presented in a very beautiful way. The book itself is very beautiful, laid out not in the double column, kind of hard to read, little footnotes approach, but more like a magazine or more like a novel. But then the main feature of the Word on Fire Bible is the text itself is surrounded, literally, by a commentary. Now, some from me, from sermons and, and articles and so, uh, so on of mine, but from the great masters of the tradition, theological, spiritual, biblical, everybody from Augustine and Jerome and Chrysostom to Thomas Aquinas to uh, Flannery O'Connor and Fulton Sheen and everybody else. And then furthermore, is all kinds of beautiful art in it. And so it's the word on fire um, instinct that the way of beauty, and that's Pope Francis too, of course, that the way of beauty is often a way in. And then it's the Bible, but surrounded by text, we hope that will open it up and help people to appreciate it uh, spiritually and theologically. So that's the word on fire Bible. Uh, and it's so far, I mean, the first volume is, is uh, almost sold out as we speak. And uh, we're hoping that just is a many years project. It, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, uh, Bishop Barron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We do have, um, one final question that we ask all of yeah. our guests. Um, if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not fictional or real, who would it be and why? Uh, fictional or real, huh? I got that kind of range. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, She's on her way. I, I'm always been a great Dorothy Day fan, and uh, I guess I'd say Dorothy Day because uh, to me she sums up something that I think is so so important: the link between call it classical and densely textured Catholicism with the commitment to social justice. And those two things have often split apart from each other in the years after the Council. And one way I'd look at the sad liberal conservative split is just that those two things split apart and liberals are now all social justice conservatives are all you know dense catholic uh, identity and i'd say no look at dorothy day uh she saw one because of the other 
I mentioned Reynold Hillenbrand earlier, who knew Dorothy Day very well. He had the same idea that liturgy gives rise to the transformation of the society. So I guess that maybe is that too easy because she's on the way to canonization. Uh, <laughs> I say Dorothy Day. No, and it, it's a uh, unsurprisingly an answer we get a lot on the pod. So yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, she's definitely on the way. So Saint Dorothy, pray for us. <laughs> pray for us. Um, Bishop Barron, thank you so much for joining us. Um, My we pleasure. really appreciate it. it. Yeah, God bless you all. Thanks. Thank you. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Like I said before, no consolations and desolations. But if you enjoyed our conversation with Bishop Robert Barron, uh, please share this episode with someone who you think uh, would find it helpful. Uh, like Bishop Barron said in the show, uh, us young 20-year-old, 20-something Catholics, we're on the front lines uh, and we need we need other people to be listening to this and joining the conversation. So consider sharing the conversation. Consider joining our Patreon community, patreon.com slash American Media. Uh, we we want to be in touch with you, even though we're going on break for the summer. Yeah, and we are going on break, but that doesn't mean that your Patreon dollars are going to waste. Um, we're going to be hard at work improving the show, making it better, and that is why we need some feedback from you, the listeners, in this listener survey. So again, it's in our Facebook group, our Twitter feed, show notes. As I said earlier, I will personally email it to you if you can't find it, so send Josh Whitical an email. Um, and we are so psyched to come back uh, this September with our new season. But until then, we will miss you and reach out to us. Um, let us know how your summer's going, what you're struggling with, especially as we start transitioning into going back to mass in some places. Um, but we are really looking forward to coming back with our new season in September. Until then, please pray for us. Thank you for all your support. We will be praying for you and we will see you in the Facebook group and on Twitter. And when we get back, get us out of here, Ashley. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you in the fall. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing them in the patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that they will go out into the American culture and leaven it with the good news. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture UST.